from the EAH team. Welcome to Everything About Hydrogen. This is the podcast that explores the world of hydrogen and its derivative technologies and interrogates how it is changing the world of energy as we know it. Join host Patrick Malloy, manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, Alicia Eastman, President of Intercontinental Energy, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, as the team speak to some of the most innovative and exciting players in the industry. If you're a fan of the show, we would love if you'd leave us a five-star review for everything about hydrogen wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help boost us up the charts and help more people find us. And with that, I'll leave it to the team and let's get on with the show. Hey, Alicia. How are you? What's going on? Hey, Patrick. How are you doing? Not so bad. It's not too early in the morning, so you actually have uh, a little bit of pep in your in your. Uh, I was going to say in your walk, but obviously that's not occur on a podcast. Yeah, yeah. For for all our listeners, I am not strolling around in our beautiful, slightly humid morning here in DC. So uh, no, no. It's uh, yeah, not not too early, thankfully, because we we had the good fortune of having uh, having a North American based guest with us today. So. Uh, so not not a not a bad way to to start the the kind of the week. Um, so so Alicia, as always, I've got to ask, well, what have you been up to? Where where have you been traveling these days? I am. I don't think I've traveled very much for a while. Maybe a couple of weeks. But um, summer hiatus, eh? Yeah. No, but I mean, still, actually, I have to go to Brussels this week. But there has been there have been a lot of big meetings. I think which will end. And then there'll be a little bit of an industry break in August is my hope. But uh, just today we were working, the Hydrogen Council has partnered with the COP presidency uh, for all the hydrogen events uh, at COP. And we had a meeting today for all the people that are involved in that. And and I think it's going to be really exciting. And it is really impressive how together this team is that's planning COP. Because having participated in 26 and 27, I will tell you that we had this level of clarity about two weeks before COP started for the last two. Like <laughs> we're, we're in July right now and it's comparable to just like two weeks before the last COPs. It, we had no idea what day things were going to be on. There was so much chaos around each of those two. And especially there was COVID for Glasgow. So that, that added a lot as well. So this one is going to be a lot smoother. And I think it's going to be pretty exciting and have a lot more on hydrogen. And it's, it's also going to be a, more of a blend of private and public sector and, and just getting the, those conversations going. It also has more youth uh, representation, which is interesting. And I think it's going to be a good one. Great. Sounds interesting. I guess we're we're in the the countdown for this as well now at this stage, given that we're in the middle of July. So um, yeah, time time's a ticking. Yeah, well, it's November thirtieth is the start. So th- that's how together these people are. <laughs> this this is really being uh, very well managed. So it's it's a good sign for a good cop. Glad to hear it. So who do we have on today? This is uh, someone you've brought to us. So so today we, we have uh, Matthew Bleisko. He's the CEO of Lyft H2. Uh, they are a uh, 
kind of uh, an infrastructure uh, provision and, and support uh, kind of entity, um, essentially focused on, on delivering an operation of cost-effective, safe and reliable next-generation hydrogen infrastructure. And interestingly, you know, uh, they are um, kind of a company that's that's kind of based in, in the U.S., but also um, have, uh, in Germany and have a presence, I think, in the U.K., and um you know matthew no doubt will will go into this a little bit but they have a team of of folks who've been working in this space for for quite a little while and as such i'm sure he has uh, some interesting insights and thoughts on how this uh this market will evolve and some of the challenges that we're going to see as we get into the kind of the infrastructure and distribution challenges of a emerging hydrogen economy and ecosystem excellent let's get him on So Matthew, great to great to have you on with us. I, I suppose if we're going to you know go through the the kind of the introductions and whatnot, I've got to ask you one one kind of sub question, which is, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your story, as well as as kind of how uh, Lift AH two kind of came together, and um, how those two things kind of converged? Sure. Yeah. My um, my background is in aviation and aerospace engineering, and um, you know wanted to. To go that route, but I'm, I'm at the heart an innovator as well. And and after dabbling in a, in a few roles across that industry, I just realized that wasn't the space to to innovate in the way I wanted to. And so when I went back and and uh, got my master's in energy systems and and more of that system systems engineering, systematic problem solving kind of a space. And uh, that's where I was intro- introduced to the the world of energy and uh, never really looked back. So. From there, you know, I've been in a startup before this one, been uh, working around energy storage systems, which was a little bit early for, for the time. It's about 15 years ago. So this was compressed air energy storage, um, which, you know, gas being $9 million BTU back when I was working on it. Uh, all of a sudden, fracking comes along and then no one cares about storing wind power. You just build a gas turbine. So lear- learned a lot of things of that technology isn't enough, right? There's a whole bunch of other things needed to, to come together to make something happen. And then from there, I went to Shell, where I had a, a, f- a few different roles and here in, in the uh, U.S. Northeast. And that's where I was introduced to hydrogen. So I, I never started out, you know, with a with a plan to, to get into hydrogen or, or, you know, work my way towards it. It kind of found, found me. And, and I saw that as kind of one of the bigger, more interesting systematic problems uh, to solve because it's everyone knows about the false dons and hydrogen and there's always a reason in hindsight of why that was and I just saw a really interesting confluence going forward of the technology we needed was there but there was these other problems to solve you know like productization and policy and bilateral agreements and like all these other things operationalizing this stuff right and so I've, I found that really interesting so jumped in with both feet and then from the vantage point, you know, it, it's I, I always reflect back at my time at Shell. I was very privileged to kind of have that thirty-five thousand foot level of the energy system, and and just how vast it actually is as well. You don't really get an appreciation for just how incredible it is. The the fact that we can flick the lights on and we just take it for granted that they'll turn on, and that the price fluctuations, as much as there there are price fluctuations, it's not. Prices aren't going up by 5x one day and down, you know, the next day. It is relatively stable. So there's some very good reasons for that. So, you know, I had the the combination of learning how the big guys 
deliver cheap, reliable energy, and also that experience on the ground floor of trying to trying to productize a, a new energy technology. You know, I think hydrogen was the right fit for me from those combinations. And then starting Lyft was really kind of wasn't the plan. Uh, you know, really it was all all about the mission about integrating hydrogen supply chains and integrating business concepts and getting that done. But what I also learned is that to, you know if you think about a company is kind of a persona. There's different structures and different companies set up to do different things. And major oil and gas companies are set up to do certain things very, very well, uh, like deploy lots of capital, high risk capital, right? They, they have ways to, to manage that, that no other companies can, but there's things they can't do well, like, you know, stitching together new supply chains from scratch and developing suppliers and managing first deployment risks and things like this. And so, I saw a huge opportunity to take some pretty switched on people and start Lyft uh, H2 to, um, to really tackle these, these integration challenges across the supply chain in a uh, pre-growth kind of risk, risky environment. That's what we're designed to do um, and, and really take all those experiences and complement the players that are in the space now. But we saw that there was a pretty big gap in people trying to figure out how to stitch the upstream and midstream and downstream together in a way that made sense to end users. So that's the somewhat abbreviated version, but probably longer than needed to be. I mean, very interesting. I, I, for Just for our listeners, it would be great to have a basic understanding of uh, what Lyft H2 does um, and how that fits into the broader H2 ecosystem. Yeah, so Lyft H2 is focused on midstream uh, novel midstream products and uh, project services that are designed to fill gaps in the current market. So we all know that hydrogen skill sets are, are rare uh, or, or hard to come by today. That'll change over time as, as more and more projects become engaged. So what we did is curated a pretty deep talent base in hydrogen experience and then focused that on these uh, products and services that tend to fall through the cracks. So there's a lot of focus on production, right? We hear a lot about electrolysis. We hear a lot about on-site generation of hydrogen, be it either through SMR or electrolysis. And then we hear about the other side of things, right? Hydrogen refueling stations and blending of uh, pipelines or, or on-site systems for indus- industry. But there's very little discussion about, well, how do these two things actually connect? And even within those, the upstream and the downstream bit, how do you design those that they can interface with each other? And that's what Lift H2 focuses on. So our services are, we have projects or we have customers across the full spectrum, production, midstream and downstream. We design and develop these, uh, these prod, uh, products and projects on behalf of, of clients to make sure they work together, right? So just simply building electrolysis in the middle of the Central Valley, California gets you zero points, right? You have to be able to design your export and your compression or your liquefaction systems to be able to move that hydrogen in a very cheap and reliable and effective way to your end users. Because at the end of the day, if you, you know, remember nothing about what we do is we are incredibly customer focused, end user focused. If they don't buy, nothing matters. So if you make really cheap hydrogen that can't be exported, you get zero points, right? If you can't move hydrogen around in, again, getting back to that experience from a major oil and gas company, the way hydrogen's moved around today is it's it's cute, right? It's, it's very small, very small quantities. It's not quite just-in-time delivery. The price fluctuates all over. So if you want to scale this, 
you need, really need to think about this in a totally different way. So exporting your hydrogen, receiving it on the other end, how you move it, how you bunker it, how you store it. We just need to have a total shift in how that happens to actually uh, make a cost-effective solution to the end, end user. And, and that's what we focus on. So I, I'm curious, um, so do you look at ammonia or other wrappers for the hydrogen in order to move it around? We- we focus exclusively on gas over road, and the, it's not to say that's the only way hydrogen will be moved around. But in again, you know, kind of when launching the company, I realized that I'd been involved in in a project for uh, LH two shipping, and you saw very clearly that you know, and, and this is analogous to ammonia. You saw very clearly that oh, this is technically something that could happen, right? You saw LNG come come around in the last twenty years, but this is decades away from being mass market. Right. And and so it's not that that won't be a way that hydrogen's moved around the globe. But if you look at the first, you know, call it a research LNG carrier and the time it took for that first commercial LNG cargo, that was two to three decades between those two times. Right. And and I don't think hydrogen will be any different. And so what we focused on was, well, how do we go from doing hundreds of kilograms per day at a retail site? to tons per day, right? Yeah, we all want to do tens of tons and hundreds of tons and thousands of tons. Absolutely. But every order of magnitude scale up is a new business model. It's a new set of technology. It's a new set of risks, right? So to go from where we really are today, which is hundreds of kilos a day of green, you know, low carbon hydrogen of any one consumer to even a couple tons a day, that's a big deal. And so we focus on overroad gaseous delivery and reducing the cost of that and expanding the economic range of, of moving that. So instead of being able to move, say, 50 kilometers, you know, moving that up to 300 to 400 kilometers of economic range for these systems by increasing capacity, increasing speed. You know, we like to say we have a wide, fast conveyor belt to move hydrogen through, right? If you think of it as a factory, I make something over here, I consume it over there, you got to have a big, wide, fast, cheap conveyor belt. And that's how we think about it. Matthew, just to, to hit on a point that you, you've emphasized through through your, your kind of first response there, which is which is around kind of a customer delivery consistency, you know, kind of effectively some of the questions that the demand side of the market is, is certainly now very, very cognizant of, I suppose. What are the remaining challenges? And, and maybe to put a bit of a point on it, we've obviously seen the, the DOE announcement of, of some demand side, albeit I think it was a billion dollars. So it's it's not going to make a market in and of itself. But but are triggers like that sufficient or are we are we just missing pieces still, I suppose? We're, we're absolutely missing pieces. I think it's it's a billion dollars is, is certainly a lot of money if it was awarded in one project. right? But obviously that's going to be distributed across multiple projects. But I think it's it's the start of a conversation that hasn't happened yet. Right. So the fact that now this is an announced thing says, this is important, right? The DOE says, this is an important thing, right? We haven't participated in any of the hubs. We've, we've held the pen on some of the, of the proposals for others, but um, we haven't intentionally done that. First of all, because we're a small company, right? And so we need to focus on, on developing business that we can transact in a, in a near term, but more so because, you know, we felt that it's not about hydrogen won't scale based on how fast you build electrolysis. Hydrogen will scale based on how comfortable consumers are with buying hydrogen. And so the demand side focus is, I think, been missing in in this whole conversation. It's not conceivably, right, if you can build 
you know, 500 megawatts of wind in West Texas, you can build 500 megawatts of electrolysis, right? As so, you know, next eras of the world and whatnot, right? That's should, shouldn't be something that's inconceivable if you have the demand, right? And so the demand is much harder because it's not about, oh yeah, I can go build a big blending skid or I can go build a big, you know, heavy duty refueling depot. That's, that's not the hard part, right? That's something, you know, we could do and, and a few others could do. It's getting the customer to switch fuels or getting the customer to agree to blend five, 10% into an already functioning system, right? It's only risk for them. And so there's a lot of focus that needs to be put on, on the end user, why they should do this. What's the advantages, right? Why, you know, this is a better vehicle. It's actually a more reliable fuel. Why? Because you can make your fuel within two, three, 400 kilometers where you're using it and you're not, you know, you can have long-term price stability. And so focusing on these things, I think is what's been missing. And I think we'll see a lot more of that because a lot of these projects, and we've seen things being published recently on this, there's not a lot of FID uh, FID projects for a reason. And co-locating your supply with your demand, those are unicorn projects. So go, go for it, right? But that's not a scaling strategy. Your energy, again, getting back to what I saw from the 35,000 foot level, your energy is wherever it's going to be, right? The sun and the wind and the biofeedstocks are not where your customers are. And so you have to figure out how to move this hydrogen and you have to figure out how to get them to convert away from systems that already work. That's what I like to tell anyone who will listen, right? And and the the midstream and the downstream is is really the control point in this industry, not the production today. Um, and I think um, more people are waking, waking up to that. So a lot more focus on, on how do we have these multilateral, bilateral conversations around moving the hydrogen, the securing the demand and, uh, you know, convincing and, and providing the comfort to end users that, you know, they're going to have reliable, safe supply of energy still in this transit. Maybe as a quick follow on to that, because that, that reliability point to my mind seems to be certainly in the weeds, but it underlies every, every strand of questioning, whether it doesn't matter the scale of the offtake, it doesn't matter the, the kind of uh, the profile of the offtake, for that matter, there's there's inherently a question in early markets around security of supply and consistency of supply, and and I suppose you know bringing this back to to yourselves and, and the the work that you do, how how does your system or your your approach, I suppose, kind of feed into those kind of uh, stability and consistency of availability kind of positions? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So we, we like to talk about four things. We talk about cost, of course, and, and that's where everyone focuses on today. But we're not there yet. And what I mean by that is customers are more interested in, as you just, just mentioned, reliability, safety, and performance. Those are the things they're more concerned about than cost. Why? Because they're not doing full fleet conversions today. They're not switching 100% of their methane over to hydrogen. So if they're doing 5%, they can sustain a higher cost. But what they can't sustain is if you inject 5% hydrogen into their gas turbine and ruin their gas turbine. That's unacceptable, right? Or cause an incident. So they're much more focused on the other three things than the cost bit. And if we you know, look at the, uh, the, the hydro, multiple hydrogens that, that the California light duty users have, have gone through, right? They're willing to pay a higher price for hydrogen, but what they're not willing to do is line up for two hours for their fuel. And this is what I get get to in in you know the ammonia question, right? Yes, but you have to provide a reliable, safe, high performing fuel at every step of the scale ladder on the way to mass market. So if you don't do the next step reliably, you don't get step two. 
And so what we focus on in our systems is resiliency and robustness and safety and, and certainly cost. But what we like about, again, the reason why we focus on gaseous over road systems is because instead of having to master plan infrastructure from say point A to point B, you know, I'm building 50 tons of, of liquefaction over here at this size, because that's what I need to do to get the cost down. And then I'm going to you know, ship it to this customer. And it's, very, it's a very master plan kind of system, which is not resilient commercially, because what if that customer then drops out? Or what if my plant is delayed? I have one plant I can produce from. What we're focused on more is about distributed, resilient, many-to-many systems. So with a high-capacity tube trailer, high-capacity ex- uh, compression systems, standardization of, of modules across the supply chain, you can design one, build many, you can gather a couple tons a day from this, you know, uh, waste to hydrogen plant. You can gather, you know, five tons from this uh, wind farm coming off of a PPA getting slaughtered on the merchant market. You can gather, you know, a, a one ton from this solar field. It's all the same systems. And you can gather all that and aggregate it into a customer base that you can move that into mobility or you can move it into industry. You can move it into heavy mobility with the same systems. So resiliency is not just about how do I make a reliable technology. Resiliency is about how do I develop that technology so that it creates a reliable network and then also a reliable business construct, right? So that's that's what we focus on. Right. And and with this this focus on demand, what has been your experience with Ira? You know, when we look at it from here, I'm American, but I'm in London. Um, when I look at it, I, I see something that's very carrot heavy, (laughs) lots of stuff for the supply side, but not very much for the demand side and also no sticks. Um, And that's obviously characteristic of almost all of U.S. um, legislation for things like this. But uh, do you think that there should be at least um, some sort of government way to corral or I guess you're corralling demand in some sense, but a way to um, to ensure it? or to just focus on it more, to find incentives for demand, to offset, to have a, a carbon price, some, something to, to make them choose hydrogen. Yeah, it's, it's pretty obvious when it's just carrots. You know, what we're seeing is the IRA is great, and it's an it's a, it's amazing piece of, of legislation, right? So there's, we don't want to take away from helpful that is. But at the same time, what we see is a, a massive dip in investment in both, you know, startups in, in infrastructure. Why? Because everyone's waiting to see what's the IRS going to do. How, how are these credits going to be, you know, be able to be monetized and whatnot. And, and, and so it's clear is that people are jumping into it for the carrots only and not because they think this is a good, well, some may think that, hey, this is the, the way to the future should go, but people are being led by the business opportunity. And so it's always going to be, so when it gets hard, when things don't work, when there's challenges, What's going to happen then? What's going to keep people doing this, right? I think is the way we think about it. And yeah, there's certainly, I'm, I'm Canadian, so there's you know, half European, half American is kind of how we like to think about it. So you've got these kind of blend of sticks and carrots kind of thinking up, up north. But what, what's the thing we're trying to avoid? What we're trying to avoid is the impact of climate change, first of all, right? But then also the impact that that climate change has on our existing infrastructure, right? A great example is look at... Southern California, right? LA, people are trying to electrify, but they can't. You know, some of these heavy duty depots that are being built can't get interconnects because you just literally can't take all of the energy moved through molecules today and put it over the wire. 
And so now people are running into the buzzsaw of wanting to do this, but they can't get access to the hydrogen. They can't get access to what they want to do. And so they stop because then what you see is people saying, well, if I can't do it, then no one can. And so some people are banking on the fact that this, uh, these incentives or these sticks are going to go away because it's just not possible. So I think that's, that's what we have to worry about is that the motivation to do this might wane just simply because um, if everyone's trying or the, the willing participants are trying and failing, then why would the unwilling participants you, you know, even get in there? So one way to think about this is why not reward the first movers? Right. So if, if you're willing to get in and solve these problems, the reason why others are you know, waiting on the sidelines is because they're either not doing it for the pure motivations or however you want to call it. Right. Or they just don't know how to manage those risks. So economically or you know, commercially reward the people who are willing to get in and do it. And that's not necessarily through incent, you know, incentives or whatnot. That could be there's all sorts of ways to, to reward people, right? Pre- preferential interconnects for other parts of their business or smooth permitting or, or expedited permitting for other parts of their business, right? There's all sorts of ways to help a company's core business go, you know, improve by saying, okay, you're going to take a risk as a first mover over here. We'll help you, you know, you're going to go build a new warehouse over there. We'll make sure that permit goes well. So my, my point being that you can still use carrots, but reward the people who are, you know, getting in and and mitigate their first mover disadvantage risk. Yeah. But as a, as a startup, I mean, how are you facing any specific challenges from IRA or the general market? Is there anything specific that uh, you're struggling with in the fundraising environment? Absolutely. And the thing that we're seeing very clearly is through going to the capital markets to, you know, what we do is capitally intense, it's infrastructure, right? So, so, you know, this isn't, uh, you know, venture money. Um, this is infrastructure scale money that, that is needed to do anything, even a pilot project. And what I've found is there's really two buckets of money, generally speaking, obviously there's, you know, that's a generalization, but just for the sake of discussion, there's the venture folks who love tech, right? I'm going to invest in a new widget, a new electrolyzer, a new platform, a new, whatever it may be. And then there's the infrastructure funds that love to get, you know, the sushi train of projects created in front of them. And they like to pick off the off the train what they what they like and, and essentially invest in in projects that are ready to go FID. Neither of those models work in this space because what you need is people to invest in the middle market to unlock this. Right. The technology's there, but the products aren't. People need to invest in productization. So if I if I hear how many patents do you have one more time from an investor? I'm going to scream, right? It's that doesn't matter in this space. It's, you know, that's a piece of paper hanging on a wall. It's how are you wrapping that core technology in a system that someone can consume? So all of the know-how, the system integration, the productization, the certifications, the operational, you know, having the the, the oper- uh, operating plans to, to get that thing into place, that, that's real value. And investors need to think like that. And then on the other side, too, in a transition market like hydrogen, you're not going to get a fully nice baked portfolio of projects to invest in. You got to take a few steps upstream and invest in development companies, invest in top codes to develop the portfolio you want to invest in. And what we're seeing is both of those investors have raised their funds under a charter that doesn't let them do this. So the, the infrastructure funds just want to invest in, in durable you know, project assets. They, they understand the need to 
to kind of encourage and, and, and invest in these top goes, but can't, you know, the market's too early is what we hear constantly. And then same thing on the other side, it's like, oh, well, that's not a product or that's not a technology. You're like, well, a great example is our core product or, or a high capacity trailer. The core product uh, is, you know, it's built around a, a new storage tube, a new type four storage tube. That core technology is not our technology. But all of the systems around it, the protocols to fill it quickly and empty quickly without blowing up or freezing the tank, the control systems, the safety management, the system design, the certifications, the the operability, the all the contracts in the supply chain, that's ours. And that's huge value, right? That takes as much money and skill to develop as the core technology itself. So I think what I would challenge the investment community to think about is integration is value integration has competitive advantage and is commercial. And that's something that is not being invested in in this highly integrated market, right? Whereas solar and wind, you can draw a box around the land that you build that on, throw all of your solar and wind projects there, and there's a clear connect to the grid, right? It's, you can, it's much more, um, you, you can, well, draw a box around it. Hydrogen, you can't do that, right? It's kind of a little bit like renewable development. It's also a little bit like oil and gas development. So you, you kind of have this blend now that no one really knows what to do with. And the answer is integration. This integration is what's blocking people from subscribing their projects because they can't sell to the market. And it's what's preventing people from buying because they can't find the hydrogen. But investors aren't investing in that integration. So Matthew, I think we've covered a wide range of the uh, the challenges and uh, I suppose the, the obstacles to, to market kind of realization It'd be remiss of us not to ask you before we finish up, what's next? Because it seems like you're you're well positioned amongst uh, that kind of uh, structural kind of pain point um, that you've just spoken to there in the last response. So, what's what's next for you and, and the team? It's uh, it's just good old elbow grease. It's touching as many projects as we can with the services to get the production in the right you know with the right specs and and get them through the. The challenges that that they're seeing, getting as many customers comfortable with consuming that hydrogen again through through services to help them design their projects, and then uh, you know look uh, early next year we've we've already launched uh, our mobile refueler and uh, and and trailer. We've got a digital platform. We've already launched to market, and and we're just working very hard with some key launch customers to get those out there. So yeah, I think look look in uh, early 2024 for uh, announcements around these uh, these products for for people kind of are already in that space, right? They're feeling the pain, and, and they can get what what we do for them, and um, serving as this integrator, uh, you know, on 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 two sides of of uh, the ocean. So for, yeah, for us, our plan and strategy is clear and it's just a, about touching as many customers and products as projects as possible to to get these things across fid right and that's um that's it it's just a uh, elbow grease and doing what we came here to do well matthew i think i think i can say uh, this has been a really enjoyable and interesting interview and, and thanks for uh, for taking the time to join us and uh, wishing you and the team the best of luck as you go forward in this critical integrative uh, moment for our hydrogen systems uh, economy i suppose for lack of a better word thanks for having you it was a great conversation so patrick uh what did you think of the interview well it's always it's always good to talk to matthew and to to hear his perspectives on on kind of how this market is evolving especially because 
Lyft sit in an interesting space in the market, right? They're, they're, they're developing and, and working on that kind of that delivery infrastructure strand of it. And, it, and it's a very challenging space. Um, but fundamentally, it is one of the, the most challenging and necessary pieces that we have to get right. And, and that's not to say that it's just one strand of infrastructure. It's about how you put the infrastructure pieces of the picture together, right? And and that is both a conversation around scale and it is a conversation about electron versus molecule. It's a conversation about which molecule to the point. And, and I think, Alicia, you hit on that one as well. But fundamentally, this is one of our, our big pieces in making making this real, and, and you know, I, I did ask Matthew about the, the resiliency and delivery piece, and, and that is something that is you know fundamentally going to challenge our creation of offtake, and therefore you know to some degree bankability of project because all the all the hydrogen in the world you know is is to the to the point useless if it can't get to the consumer with the consistency of uh, of delivery that they need and. As such, expanding these systems, improving the range, improving the consistency of the price on delivery, you know, improving the relative kind of planning and integration, and to that matter, into things like permitting and, and stuff like that are, are going to be fundamental if we want to see the rapid scale that everybody's hoping for. But that that's just my immediate reflection. What about yourself, Alicia? What do you think? No, I, I agree with that. And, and, and also um, some of the frustrations that he's feeling, I think, are not only felt within the hydrogen community writ large, but the energy transition itself. I think we have a, a calcified system of private investment, which is starting from even incubation and seed to VC to growth to buyouts to mezzanine to you know infrastructure funds but it's so uh specific and none of these these different fund structures really actually are focused on what needs the most care which is that sort of development desert like it's very easy to get checks from your friends or from industry experts or it's for seed stage investing but anytime you need to have assets, like you need to buy, you need to build actual real assets, this is a lot of money, um, you know, and it is not really available. Uh, it's, it's available when everything's de-risked right at the end, when you're about to hit FID, then you can get big checks. But there's really no solutions in between. And uh, I mean, if you look at what the transition requires, I mean, I think McKinsey is saying 2.75 trillion and everything that is on that list is infrastructure. It's asset heavy. It's, you know, there's some technology, but mostly technology light and asset heavy. And that's just not what investors are used to. I mean, we've had 35 years of social media and things that, that are very light, except for maybe server farms. So I, I think the industry and the investment industry has to change. I think they have been acknowledging that. I think Gates with the breakthrough, um, they have said that they're develop, they're focusing on this development desert. Um, there people are talking about blended financing. So you have more from the government and then also you have private investments. Um, I think that one of the big things that people are missing out on is project finance that I think that, um, there's a lot of ways to get financing through traditional project finance 
models that people have not deployed for a very long time because, you know, the other capital is more easily available. But there's a lot of things that project finance can do to help de-risk a project uh, and help get the capital together that is probably underused right now. And I, I think it's something that we're going to see a lot more of as we see you know, tons of infrastructure investment required, even for his company, which he's saying he is a, a connector. He also needs um, assets. It's not, you know, it's not just optimization software or some kind of, you know, connection point. So I think I think the investment community does recognize this. There are a lot of investors that are trying to do longer funds. Um, you know, we obviously had GIC invest in us, which was taking, which was coming in earlier than they normally would. Lots of people have had some investors coming in maybe a little bit later than they normally would. Getting getting that sort of both of those to do that to meet together, it would be uh, really really helpful for the whole industry, and I, I think it just has to happen because this is the alpha. This is this is the growth industry. With the, you know, the energy transition has to happen, um, and it, it is it is the source of most of the deals for for these investors uh, going forward. So maybe just a reflection on that because I think fundamentally. You know, if if there is that acceptance or recognition, maybe let's start with that within the, the the financing space of the need for some level of shift. To what degree does that then become, you know, part of the the kind of the, the bottleneck piece, right? And maybe to think back to to the question you raised around carrots and sticks, how policy or or for that matter, how you know whether it be a carrot or a stick you know, starts to shift the financing models or to de-risk some of those positions relative to the conventional approach. I don't know what that specifically means or looks like myself, but I'm, I'm just thinking that, you know, inevitably when we see the kind of money that, that's being put down on the table at the moment for enabling these projects, there has to be some level of appetite there on the financial side to, to kind of um, enable that accessing that 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 resource right and and fundamentally if if the projects don't get built there is no ptc in the us or there's no you know kind of supports on on you know buyer supports or whatever else yeah i, I mean i think some places like japan europe there are a number of places that are combining carrots and sticks maybe in a little bit better way than than the us market but that's sort of always been true of the US. The legislation has, has always been that way. But I think that when I say stick, I mean, just regulation, right? Like just having having targets that uh, you you have to abide by or having some type of decarbonization plan or, and whatnot. That, I mean, that can be, that, that's an indicator for the market that's just as sturdy as an offtake agreement in, in some cases. So, you know, if we're not getting people that that have the guts to do an offtake, then you sort of need to find other solutions. And, and it could be buyers clubs or it could be regulations. If they absolutely have to do this, then they're going to do it. Right. I mean, <laughs> that, that, that's the, that's the thing. Um, I, I think we, we come from such a crazy point of view on this where this green premium is used all the time and really, Doing things the green way is, is the right way 
and <laughs> and not paying for your pollution and just spewing it out for free should be considered like the wrong way, <laughs> right? <laughs> that, that's not the base, but we treat what we've always done as the base and then anything else you do, well, then that's a green premium. And, and I just think that that's just a really ass backwards way of looking at the situation. Um, I pulled the Chris there. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think I think what it gets us to is that one of one these are this is one of the emerging kind of topics that the sector is going to grapple with over the next little while, and fundamentally, if we don't get a, a true grip of that, it, it it becomes a very very tangible problem re market evolution and development and scaling, and um, I think I think that was a point well made. So yeah, I mean. I, I can't. I can't complain. I, we we just announced last week uh, that MOU with uh, Kepco for our second project in Australia, and they are, you know, they're interested in partnering. Obviously, because there's a lot of demand. Um, so that's we we have that we have in our projects. We can see the demand, right? We can see that uh, the people that choose to join our projects or who we've brought in are all people who see the demand. Or, or they are the demand. And I think, uh, so I'm very comfortable that there is the demand. <laughs> it's just a, a matter of making investors comfortable, I think. And usually that requires both uh, signals from the buying element and also some regulations. Because of course you have to have the regulations that just keep track of it, right? I mean, you need, <laughs> it, it, it's, you have to set like what levels need to be met, but also you just need the actual apparatus and the measuring to, to occur so that you know what the difference is between green and not green. And, and that requires regulations. So, you know, there, there's, there's some things missing, <laughs> but I, I think that, I think we're even hoping by COP, um, we will have a, a lot more progress on proper assessment, certification, ISO standards for things that are actually something that you could build your policy around and then you have sort of mutual recognition from different uh, countries. Uh, and that could happen. I mean, I, I think we're not that far away from that happening. I think it's within a year. That, that would allow, I think, a lot of, um, a lot of demands to uh, break free a bit because they can actually see what the impact is on them. And that they'll see what is necessary in order for them to meet whatever regulations that the, their states are requiring or their industry, like IMO, for instance. Well, I think on that on that note, you're you're entirely right. It's um, I think this is one to to watch. So you heard it here, folks. Watch this space. I think there's more more for us to discuss and to to get into. But. Um, with that, I think we should probably call it there. So thanks, thanks, Alicia. Always great to, to chat, and uh, it was great to have Matthew and and uh, on and to hear hear about the work that Lyft are doing. Absolutely, and to the listeners out there, please uh, drop us a line if you're interested in digging deeper into some of these topics, or you have ideas for people we should have on the show. Um, we'd love to hear it, and uh, you can catch us at our website or on LinkedIn, um, and email is also on our website. That was Everything About Hydrogen, hosted by the team Patrick Malloy, Alicia Eastman, and Chris Jackson. 
If you have a question for the Hydrogen team or any of our guests and would like to get in touch, you can shoot us an email on info at h2podcast.com or alternatively, you can follow us on LinkedIn or tweet us. Our handle is at About Hydrogen. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.